thinking. So turn the page and let's jump into the first principle of unity, which is the most important by far. It's the theology of unity. It's where unity really comes from. It's what we call the principle of the spirit. The principle of the spirit. Here's what it says. There's only one head of the church, and he is in us all. There's only one head of the church, and he is in us all. And for the theologians among you, if you want to be nitpicky about this, you can put in parentheses after that, as believers, if you want. But the point is, all of us are created in the image of God. The point is, all of us were created with this God-shaped, as C.S. Lewis would refer to it as, a God-shaped void in us that only God can fill. In fact, uh, if you keep going ahead uh, with the slides, there are a couple of verses where you, we can start with this and it'll make sense. Colossians 1, 25, and also Genesis 1, 27. Let me, let me piece those together for you. It's a real interesting thing. I, one, of, one of the things that fascinates me most about God's Word is there are all these secret passageways between it. I mean, can you imagine a secret passageway between Colossians chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1? But it's here. And let me read it to you and, and explain. This is in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, the last word of, uh, chap- of verse 24 is the church. Uh, and I'm going to pick up because, you know, Paul was the king of run-on sentences. And, and, I mean, he could fill an entire chapter with one sentence. And so trying to pick out the, the concepts without reading the entire chapter is, is hard. And so I'm just going to pick up with the last part of, chap- of verse 24 in, in chapter 1, the church. But I'm really picking up with verse 25 then. The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. All right, so what what he has said there is the church is what we're talking about of which God called me into ministry in order to make the, the word of God fully known to all of you. That's my job. That's what God's called me to do. That's my stewardship responsibility, stewarding this word on your behalf. Listen to what he says, though. This is where it gets cool, because he starts talking about the great mystery of the ages, right? So this is where I start to lean in, because I love a mystery. This is, guys, this is like Indiana Jones type stuff. It's very cool. Listen to what he says. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but is now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, here's the mystery, this is what's been kept hidden for ages and generations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The the great mystery is Christ in you. And so you can see where that connects all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And God created man in his own image. He created them both male and female in his image. What does it mean to have been created in the image of God? Well, it means, at the very least, at the very least, it means that we were created with this God-shaped void in us that would be filled with his spirit. That's the only thing that can fill it. We will try to fill it with a lot of other things. None of them will satisfy us. That's, that's Ecclesiastes. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. I tried to fill it with sex. I tried to fill it with success. I tried to fill it with work. I tried to fill it with 
friendships. I tried to fill it with everything imaginable. And all of it was a chasing of the wind. The only thing that would fill it to satisfaction is the Spirit of God Himself. We were created that way from the beginning. And it all came to fruition at a day that we call Pentecost. Second chapter of Acts. Where, for the first time on a massive scale, the Spirit of God came down, just like Jesus said it would. Jesus said, I'm going to send my helper. The Spirit of God came down and began to fill and indwell every believer from that day forward. And that was the first time that that had happened on a massive scale. And it had happened in small instances before that for temporary things, for special assignments. Saul, in the Old Testament, right as he's anointed as king, walking with the prophets, Scripture says he was filled with the Spirit and began to prophesy. But you and I both know the story of Saul, and that didn't last very long. It was a temporary filling in order to make him appear presidential so that the people would follow him. Uh, and so there are these temporary fillings of the Holy Spirit, even, in, even, with the, even with the disciples, and I know there's some disagreement on this among some scholars, but even with the disciples, Jesus temporarily filled them to go out in pairs and in the highways and byways and proclaim the gospel and heal people and, and, and uh, cast out demons. But even that, I believe, I believe was a temporary filling. I don't think the real filling came until Pentecost. But from that day forward, every time someone comes to Christ, every time a decision is made, I want Jesus as the Lord of my life, every time that faith walk, that faith journey begins, the Spirit of God comes and fills that believer. And so, having been created for this, we then begin to have our purpose fulfilled in this world when that filling happens. Now, I am not... This mace, I don't know, I don't know y'all's background. I know, I know enough about this church to know there are people from lots of different backgrounds, spiritually and theologically, so I don't, and I don't know all of your backgrounds. I'm not a charismatic. I'm not. I'm not. I, 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 I do believe that there are some giftings that for God's own reasons he has ceased. Um, I, I, I don't believe in, in new revelations from God that, that aren't supported by Scripture. Um, there, I'm, not a, I'm not what theologians refer to as a charismatic, but I'm just going to tell you, the second chapter of Acts, guys, it's in the Bible. Now, we have to deal with that. I think we have to talk about that. It, it is reality. It really did happen, and it has been happening as the story of Acts unfolds. It continued to happen time and time again, not just with Jewish people in Jerusalem, but with Gentiles and in Antioch. And it's happened over and over and over again. And so this concept of the, the, the Spirit of God living in the believer is all over Scripture. Let's keep going and we'll... You'll see what I mean, but let's fill in the next blank. Pentecost then changed forever the way God would relate to man. Pentecost changed forever the way God would relate to man. So there are all these references in Scripture to this understanding that the Spirit of God lives in us. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and... Somebody say it. I in him, he will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea here is, I'm going to send my spirit down to fill you and to work 
through you and everything of any significance that happens in the church will happen because the Spirit made it so. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing matters if it is apart from the Spirit. Nothing has eternal significance if it is apart from the Spirit. And so when we as a church stop depending on the Spirit to accomplish the things that we're doing and start depending on our own amazing abilities as human beings. I heard Francis Chan talking about this once in a pastor's conference talking about preparing for worship. And I'm paraphrasing here, I didn't, I mean, but, but this is kind of the way he said it. Francis said, Pastor, do you really depend on the Spirit of God to show up for your gathered worship? Because if you do, then it's like having a sailing vessel. And you can trim the sails all day long to get them ready, but until the wind blows, nothing's going to happen. You can swab the decks and trim the sails and make sure everything is perfect and ready to go. But if the wind doesn't blow, nothing is going to happen. Or you can get a motor and put on the back of your boat just in case. Just in case the Spirit doesn't show up. You can make sure it happens. And if that's the way you're preparing for worship, he would say, you're getting it wrong. You don't want, you don't want to move that boat forward short of the Spirit of God blowing. You don't want to be moving it forward on your power. And so in the church, this concept of Pentecost really did change everything for us. It's not about what we can do or what we can accomplish. It is about what the Spirit of God accomplishes through us. Our job is to move out of the way and allow that to happen. That doesn't mean we don't use our gifts and our abilities and apply them to this. But what it does mean is nothing's going to be meaningful unless the Spirit shows up. Which is why the persecuted church flourishes. Because they have nothing else to rely on. It's why the church in China is estimated today to be some 250 million strong. It's estimated. The underground church in China where it's against the law to worship. Is estimated to be 250 million strong. We don't have 250 million Christ followers in the United States where we've been free to worship Jesus for 200 years. See what I'm saying? Relying on the Spirit. Um, What does it mean about our relationship with one another then? If Christ lives in one another, what does that mean for us? 1 John chapter 4 starts to address this. 1 John chapter 4 says... John says, no one, John, by the way, is the, the, the apostle who was all about relationships. He was all into relationships. I mean, that was his lens through which he saw the world. And was certainly his lens through which he understood Jesus. And John, John would say, no one has ever seen God, but if you love one another, then God lives in you. And vice versa. If God lives in you, then you will love one another. In fact, he would say, it's impossible to hate your brother and love God. Not possible. And so, uh, John really tapped into this understanding that the Spirit of God living in us 
really has this huge impact on a relationship. Fill in this next blank with me. Not wanting a relationship with the brother in Christ is simply not an option. It's just not an option. It really isn't. It's an option if it's a Christian who's not, who God's not called to walk in fellowship with you in this body of believers. But if God's linked you together, if he has yoked you together in ministry in Grace Northridge, then you're supposed to find Christ in each other. You're supposed to have a relationship with one another. It doesn't have to be best friends. You don't have to be having coffee together every day or even regularly. But you're supposed to understand Christ in one another, in a local body of believers. It's why the megachurch has all backed up and said, all the the megachurch pastors, I mean, Bill Hybels, Matt Chandler, Rick Warren, they've all stepped back and said, okay, we got this wrong. They've all said, we need to be... If we're going to continue to grow, we need to get smaller. And so they've all understood that it is about what happens in life groups, in small groups, in Bible study groups, in Sunday school groups. And by the way, I don't think God cares what we call those groups. The point is, a small group of people gathered together around the Word of God, doing life together and, and speaking God's truths into one another's lives, that's where the church becomes the church. It's not what happens in this room on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights. It's what happens around living rooms with our Bibles open, speaking truth into one another's lives. That's where the church becomes a church. That's why not wanting a relationship with the brother in Christ is simply not an option. A couple of other points before I leave this. Um, Acts chapter 9 is a great example of this principle of the Spirit. Um, Acts chapter 9, Saul's conversion. Uh, but actually, there are three places in Acts where this takes place. Uh, but in Acts chapter 9 is the, the first time we see it. And, and you remember this story when Saul, he's not a believer yet. He's a, a Pharisee, and he is, he is punishing Christians. He's, they, he's attacking. He's a part of the, the group that is going after and persecuting Christian men and women, people who are following, they call it the way. All of these Christians that have started worshiping together and creating problems for our institutional church. Saul began going out and dragging these men and women out of their homes and throwing them into prison, and he was on his way to Damascus to do that same thing when this blinding light struck him, drove him to his knees, and he fell to his knees, and the light, the voice spoke to him out of the light. You remember this story? Okay. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It said. Not, why are you persecuting these Christians, which is what he thought he was doing. It was, why are you persecuting me? And the reality there is, fill in this next blank, when we persecute one another in the church, we persecute Christ. That's the reality. When we hurt one another, when we set out to hurt one another, we are setting out to hurt Christ in one another. And, and so as you, as you begin to, you're, I, I, all I'm wanting to do here is I'm, a, I'm wanting this to kind of begin to spin out in your heart and in your mind. What all does this mean? If, if the Spirit of Christ is living in me and in my fellow church members, what all does this mean? What, is that, what, is that, what are the ramifications of that? What are the consequences of that? One other one, I'll just leave it uh, with this. Oh, well, the other one from Paul is when we perceive that our church is at stake, the level of persecution of which we are capable is remarkable. This we are seeing happen right now in our culture. Right now in our culture. The church is being 
torn apart. Tim Keller refers to it as the great unraveling in our culture, the great unraveling that we're watching take place over ideological differences. It's happening in the church as well. Well, what kind of a church are you guys? Are you all conservative or progressive? See, I need to know that before I come here. See, the, the, the great unraveling, we're, we're, allowing, we're allowing the systems of the world to frame our issues for us, and, and we're allowing the, the world to require us to talk about our issues that God gave us to deal with in the world's terms, using their labels, using their tactics, and using their dividing lines. We have really gotten messed up in the church over this, over politics, politics of all things. Come on, guys. These are issues, how, how we relate to one another, how we treat people, what we believe about the unborn, what we believe about foreigners and immigrants coming into our land, what we believe about poor people around us, what we believe about widows and orphans. Those are issues God gave us. Those aren't issues that belong to the politicians. They belong to us. We get to frame those issues. We get to talk about what words we want to use and the concepts we want to use to talk about those issues. And the politicians have nothing to do with that. But we have ceded that over to the politicians. We've ceded. We've, we've all stepped right in line with this side or that side, and we're allowing them now to tell us how to talk about those issues. And guys, I just think God is weeping over this. How could you, as stewards of those things, how could you let the world come and take them out of your hands and start talking about them the way they want to talk about them? It's not up to them, the world, to frame those issues for us. And so this, this, concept, this concept of we perceive that our church is at stake, boy, we can get really ugly, can't we? We can get really mean-spirited when we are fearful that our church is at stake. They're coming after the church next. I, yeah. I don't know if y'all have read the end of this. I read the end of it. I know how it ends. They are coming after the church. It's going to happen. We can fight it, but it's going to happen. They're coming after the church. And then we win. It, it's, it's all here, guys. And so I don't know why we get so anxious and fearful about the things going on around us when the scripture has been absolutely 100% accurate about everything that's ever happened. It's got it all nailed down for us. It's going to happen exactly the way scripture says it's going to happen, exactly the way God said it was going to happen, and then he wins in the end. What are we so fearful of? Oh, no, we're going to lose our tax exemption. Really? Is that what we're fearful of? We're going to lose our right to gather in public and worship. Tell that to the Chinese church, 250 million strong. Come on, guys. We have nothing to fear. Even though we, we, we fear our church is at stake, and when that happens, when we feel like it's my job now to step up and protect the church. When that's our attitude, we will do all kinds of ugly things. But Jesus doesn't need us to protect his church. In fact, the way Jesus said it was, I'm going to build 
my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I got this, Jesus would say to him. I got this. You don't have to worry about that. You keep loving each other. You keep loving each other in a way that the world cannot explain, and I will take care of my church. That's the attitude. I feel like we're missing that in so many ways. The last thing I want to say about this principle is uh, from John chapter 20. Uh, This is the story of Thomas. I know you know this story. Uh, Doubting Thomas, some of us call him. I don't know what Thomas did. Uh, I don't know what his... um, profession was. I don't know what his training was, his vocation was, but my suspicion always says that he was an engineer because he just, he just had to see all of the numbers add up. If they didn't add up for him, if, if he couldn't see it all connect in the right way, then it didn't really happen. It wasn't going to work. And that was kind of his attitude. And so when he was away temporarily from the upper room where Jesus had told them all to stay and wait and pray, and Jesus appeared to the other disciples. Thomas was not there at the time. So when the disciples came to him and said, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. They were right. Um, Our lives have been changed forever. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. Let us tell you this story. Jesus is alive. He appeared to us. Everything's changed. Thomas's attitude towards them was an attitude like, Thank you for that testimony, guys. Man, I can see you've been changed, and I'm rejoicing with you over this. That's fantastic. But if God has something to say to me, he's not going to say it through you. He'll say it to me directly. That's the deal I have with God. He'll say it to me directly. So I'll I'll have to wait for that. Now, that's the real tragedy. Listen, that's the real tragedy of Thomas's life. It's not his unbelief. His unbelief would be fixed three verses later. Jesus would take care of his unbelief. But what we have no record of in Scripture is that attitude of his of if God has something to say to me, he will say it to me directly. We don't have a record of that changing. Now, maybe it did. I will, I will rejoice when I get to heaven if he's there and I get to meet him. I will rejoice if that changed. But we have no record of that. And guys, they're about to enter into a season where Jesus is not there anymore to talk to them directly. And either we learn to hear from God through one another or we're not hearing from God. That's the way it's going to work. He's about to enter into an entire season where that's going to be necessary. And so, I don't know. I mean, I do do know that there are historians and scholarly writings about Thomas' life after this. In fact, I'm pretty sure Thomas is credited with taking the church to India. Um, And uh, an entire part of the Christian church there as a result of his efforts. But it's not in Scripture is all I'm saying. It's, It's not in here. It's in... It's in history books of some kind that may or may not be accurate, but it's not in here. There's no record in here of Thomas's attitude changing about that. And that, to me, is the real tragedy, and that's the tragedy in our lives as well. Fill in this last blank with me. Finding Christ in my brother or sister necessarily means I'm willing to hear God speak to me through that brother or sister. That's the tragedy. 
if I can't hear God speak through. Listen, I, I say this to people all the time. There's a story in, in the Bible about God speaking through a donkey. A donkey. And so I'm, I, I say this all the time. If, if God can speak through a donkey, I'm pretty sure he can speak through pretty much anyone in your church. So he can do that. He's, and, and, and we've got to have relationships with one another that are leaning in and listening for that. Listening for what God might have to say to me through you. That's what we're talking about here. All right. That was just really water skiing across the top of this, of this particular principle. This is the principle that I would love to just spend all day talking about and looking into and opening our Bibles and seeing all the references to this. It's all over Scripture. There are so many I haven't even talked about, about the Spirit of God living in us and moving through us. But this principle is the theology of unity. There are other principles we're going to talk about. The other four are practical uh, illustrations of how it plays out. But this is the theology of unity. When we talk about unity in the church, this is what we're talking about. The Spirit of God indwelling every believer. The same Spirit of God is in you as is in me. It's why, having never met most of you, I get to come and, and stand here and speak, and you can actually hear from the Lord if you want. Not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is in both of us. That's the reason this works. It's the reason I can go all over the world talking with people I've never met before. Not because there's anything special about me, but because of the Spirit in me, connecting with that same Spirit in them. And so this is where unity comes from. This is the very theology of unity. Okay, I want to take a break in about 15 minutes. So what I want to do is go ahead and turn your page, and I want to get to the principle of the enemy and just go through it uh, pretty quickly because, uh, and then take a break and then come back and I want to talk, I'm hoping we're going to have some time to talk together about some of this stuff. So let me just, let me, let me skate through the second principle. Again, I'm not, if, if you're feeling at all frustrated, wow, I would like to camp on that a little bit and get into that a little bit more. That's a good thing. That's what I want you to be feeling. We don't have time. Uh, but uh, I'm hoping that you'll want to, to study a little bit more.